This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the show that takes a look at new movies in cinemas or on streaming platforms and compares them to films from days gone by. And sometimes we look at a genre, sometimes we look at uh, the filmmakers, the talent behind the camera, or maybe one of its uh, distinctive stars who's had a, a long and interesting career. And uh, today we are looking at some film from Iran and its bustling and esteemed film industry. My name is Stephen Cook, and I am a multimedia journalist with the Saltwire Network and the Chronicle Herald. I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And we're going to start off with the latest film from acclaimed Iranian filmmaker Asghar Farhadi called A Hero right after this. So today, Stephen, on Lends Me Your Ears, I think it's fair to say that we'll just be scratching the surface of Iranian <laughs> film. I mean, this is a, a, a deep and historic cinema that is really impressive, just only based on the few films we were able to watch for this episode. Um, now, I know a little bit about the national cinema just through years of, of having caught films at film festivals like the local you know, Finn Film Festival here in Halifax, but, uh, but I would not say I'm any kind of expert, and I think that's fair probably. Uh, to, I think you would say the same thing, wouldn't you? Oh, I, I'm far from it. Uh, you know, I mean, the, certainly there are, I got a chance to catch up with films I've been hearing about for quite some time, and that was a real treat. Uh, but uh, but also delve into some filmmakers and some titles that I knew nothing about going in and, and was always uh, either pleasantly surprised or you know, blown out of my socks by some of the stuff that I've seen uh, over the past uh, couple of weeks of getting ready for this episode. And and yeah, well, anytime we take a look at a national cinema, uh, we're always only scratching the surface. I mean, we I think our last one was uh, films from Denmark. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, there were certainly dozens more titles we could have looked into. And that's certainly the case here. And another great thing about this episode is how available some of these titles were, that we were able to find things on uh, the Criterion uh, channel, uh, Canopy, um, which is free through your uh, local library, uh, had a number of titles. Um, Hoopla has a few. Hoopla has a few. And uh, and this uh, the first film we're going to talk about is on Amazon Prime and is being touted as a uh, top contender for the best foreign language uh, Oscar film. Certainly, uh, I think uh, those nominations come out this week and uh, it'll certainly uh, garner a nomination at the very least. Sounds like it. Yeah, it certainly has. Uh, and it has, you know, the pedigree because Asghar Farhadi, he's, I think, back in... 2011, when I saw A Separation, it won best, at the time, was called Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. Now, I guess, Best International Film. Um, that's when I discovered his work. And he had, previous to that, made, like, I think, four or five feature films, all of which still remain unseen by me. These, uh, you know, we did go digging, but About Eli from t- 2009, Fireworks Wednesday from 2006, Beautiful City from 04, and Dancing in the Dust from 03, still hard a little hard to find. I mean, you said there are a lot of films that are available. That's true. But there are also ones that I just are would will take some digging in order to find. So, so um, but, you know, I've seen a separation. I've seen the past from 2014 or sorry, 2013. And it's also amazing. So I've done my best to watch Ferrati's films every time there's been a new one. And there has been every two or three years. Uh, and uh, a hero does not disappoint. It's really nice to see him sort of back. Back, um, you know, working 
in Iran to dig into the, the subjects he's comfortable with. Like he is he is someone who really wants to reveal the uh, the troubles and the, the social issues of uh, of what's happening in Iran. And, and, you know, social realism, really, if I could draw a thread between all the filmmakers that we saw today or this week, I should say, for this for today's show, it's very much about that social realist contract, about the the problems, the struggles of regular people in Iran. And that's not to say that there aren't some some films that delve into that leave Iran and and delve into genre. Occasionally they do, but but if overall, I would say a lot of these films just are about normal people dealing with a problem that somehow reflects the issues of the day in Iran. And I feel like I've learned a lot about Iranian society. I mean, right here, we've got uh, a guy, Rahim Sultani, played by Amir Jadadi. And I want to also say before I get into the plot that I'm going to apologize right up front for my pronunciation of <laughs> people's names. We are going to struggle. At least I, I'm sure I will struggle with some pronunciations. But um, he's a painter and a callog- calligrapher, and he's in debtor's prison in the Iranian city of Shiraz, which is the famed as the site of the ancient city of Persepolis. Now, uh, Sultani's brother-in-law works actually to help maintain the ruins. Now, this character, he's out on a two-day break from prison, and he has a sort of secret girlfriend, uh, played by Sahir uh, Goldust, and uh, she finds a handbag full of gold coins at a bus stop, and, you know... Sultani's first thought is to pawn them to pay back his creditor, uh, played by Mohsen Tanabande. But uh, Sultani, the character, he has a change of heart. He puts up flyers to try to track down the bag's owner. But when he when the word gets out about his selfless deed, he's interviewed on television. He becomes something of a cause celebrity. You know, he doesn't. I mean, he certainly doesn't mind the attention, and he's also okay in kind of fudging some of the details. He doesn't say that his his secret girlfriend, who he doesn't really want anybody to know about, they don't want anybody to know about their relationship, was the one who actually found the bag. And, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, but everyone around him, even his jailer, has his back when his reputation, his rising reputation benefits them and him. Um, and a local charity takes up his cause, raising money to help him get out of prison and settle things with his creditor. But the creditor is intractable and basically says oh, that this, <laughs> this guy has no honor and doesn't deserve the acclaim for what he's doing, which is his duty as a citizen. And as we go along, we start to learn the sort of layering of narrative details as we discover that complicates every scene complicates what we already know. And it becomes this very tense uh, you know, suspenseful moment. And it, and the film is constantly asking us as viewers, what would you do in this situation? Would you have pawned those gold coins? I got to say, more than once, I'm like, given the trouble that he had, I, you know, <laughs> that might have been the simplest thing to do. Even if it wasn't the right thing Even to do. Even if it was the right thing to do. That's right. Yeah. Oh, there's oh, every plot detail has a little twist in it. It's the, the flow chart uh, for this film must have been in, insane trying to figure out, okay, like something that might be good happens, but then there's a, you know, every silver lining seems to have a cloud uh, as this film progresses. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Dickensian in, in the way it proceeds. I mean, after all, our main character is in debtor's prison, 
like literally that that's right. why he's in he's in prison for being unable to f- pay his his debt um which is a concept you know that that just feels you know like from something from two centuries ago because how are you supposed to pay your debt if you're in prison it, it doesn't it uh seems to go against logic but it's it's something that obviously happens in iran and and that's just one of the many things being commented on here and the the intractability of of um his uh his his uh I guess he would have been his his creditor, his creditor. But yeah. he, he was wasn't he engaged to uh, or married to his sister? He would have been sister his like, in law. brother in law. Yeah, or yeah like there's that. there's a family connection here, which just makes it worse. But yeah, just makes it worse. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Everything about this film is is amazing. Just the the, the portrayal of modern day life in Iran, uh, the the battles of conscience that everyone has in, in trying to do the right thing, and and how things can be turned in on each other and and uh you know whether or not honesty is the best policy and and the performances are are so wonderful and so uh so layered i mean you know you you start to feel for someone but then they just turn back on on uh, their own nature and it's uh you know it's it's often heartbreaking as it kind of wends its way uh along and and um you know, I, I I don't want to say anything about how it winds up, but it, but it, it really really does take you on an emotional journey that uh, that's uh, unlike any other. And and you know, considering that prior to this, the only Farhadi I'd seen were Salesman and uh, a Separation. Uh, you know, I, I feel like like this is as good as a Separation, which I thought was also similarly powerful. Yeah, and there's a structural similarity, and I've noticed that with Farhadi's films, is like he tends to set up, they're a little bit like procedurals, even though they're not traditionally or frequently not traditionally procedural stories. Like they're not, that's, it's not a, a thriller or, or what have you. I mean, a separation, I guess, is kind of a, um, a, a courtroom drama. But uh, in this case, you know, it's the way the plot is structured that uh, helps you kind of piece things together very slowly. And I really appreciate the kind of lockstep puzzle aspect of his films. There's like the inciting incident tends to happen about 20, between 20 and 30 minutes into the film and it changes everything. And then all of a sudden you're, the characters are constantly talking about what happened in that early. And you, and you start thinking back like what actually did happen and what would I have done and how, how did things change and how did characters make it worse? And that's something else that, that comes here. The, the, the indictments are, are multifold. You know, this, the film seems to be saying that, Everyone needs to take some accountability for what happens, and not least of all the central character. But as he tries to exert some kind of control over the consequences of, of his actions, he makes more mistakes, and it only gets worse. And And the film challenge us, uh, challenges us to sympathize with him, but also, you know, like, I feel like the film's actually critical, very critical of the system. It's like, don't hate the player, hate the game, right? It's, it's, it's critical of a system that punishes those who reach for something better in their lives, but traps them when things don't go their way. There's so little grace and forgiveness um, in a system, especially one that's so tied up in like reputation and honor. Oh yeah. The, the scenes when he's applying for a job, like they, they basically, um, you know, the, the, the society, the, the society that raises some money for him, and and uh, and you know is is, is is a charity that basically helps uh, people who've been in prison get back on their feet or, or get assistance while they're in jail and that kind of thing. And um, it uh, you know they they uh, get him a, an in with a with a government job, but of course the guy who's in charge of hiring uh, 
is relentless in pursuing the veracity of his tale of the finding these coins and returning them to their rightful owner. And uh, he just, uh, to the point of obsession, <laughs> where, uh, and, and you know, basically forces, um, you know, Amir, um, or Rahim rather, to, uh, to take some steps that aren't ethical, but, you know, will, you know, <laughs> speed the plow or so he thinks. And of course, uh, everything just falls apart, uh, from the get-go, because this this uh, this hiring um, human resources guy, I guess, with the with the government agency, is uh, doesn't miss a trick, uh, and it seems unnecessarily cruel. But it just it's probably just the procedure that everybody goes through when they when they get one of these positions, and uh, you know he just he just can't come up with a story that holds water, and it's it's just so frustrating because you know the truth would be simpler, but he but for whatever circumstance forces him into an untenable position, yeah. <laughs> he has to. You know, every time he tries to just bend the truth a little bit, it always snaps back in his face. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, I wouldn't say that it's an easy watch uh, in terms of just comprehension. Like, I I really enjoyed the challenge that it, it forced me to kind of try to piece together because things move quite quickly and you have to sort of, you know, you'll you, something will happen and then we'll go to a next scene and there'll be a character on the phone and the phone, they, like, the character will say, oh, something has changed. And you have to really, you have to really pay attention to follow it. And I think some of that challenge is also maybe slightly muddied by not having having a more full understanding of the nuances of Iranian culture. Like there are stuff, there's stuff going on. You sort of have to take on faith based on how the characters react. If you don't. And I mean, I, I, my, a lot of my understanding of Iranian culture just comes from having watched these movies. So. Yeah. I, I, yeah, definitely. The more that you watch these films, the, 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 you know, the more you take in and the better the comprehension level goes up. But, but um, I, you know, I, I started with a hero and uh, for this show and having not watched any films from Iran in, in a little while and, and uh, it all sort of seemed to come together pretty well. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I, these, as I said, these are windows into uh, a culture that uh, that feels very rich in many ways, even while the filmmakers are being really honest about uh, the problems that men and women face, religion, uh, politics, bureaucracy, and uh, uh, patriarchy. Yeah, and marriage, and which is you know comes in with the the whole patriarchal system and the way that it's uh, it's dictated and which I, I guess uh, maybe that brings us to a separation because uh, that that was I feel like that's the film that really brought him to attention in the West uh, in a big way and certainly gave us a look at how marriage and uh, that system operates in Iran and and how it's very different from what we're used to and uh, but but at the same time you know we, we I think uh, in the West, we have probably a fairly clouded idea of, you know, what it's like for women in Iranian society, and that um, they, in fact, do have maybe more leeway than than you'd think, but at the same time, not as much as you'd hope. So, uh, a separation, I've, I've, for me, it cleared up a, a lot of things about uh, about that system and and uh, you know what it's like for women in Iran. Yeah, and it. I mean, this is a theme that comes back again and again in the films we're going to talk about. Uh, a separation is on the crux of it is about uh, divorce proceedings. It starts fairly innocuously. A woman wants to get divorced and leave Iran, but uh, she can't. And uh, so she's kind of at odds with her 
wants to soon to be ex-husband or hopes to be ex-husband. Uh, and then it becomes about a class thing because there's a another another there's a religious family who are not as well off who are who comes into the sort of household. There's a um, so, there's a tragedy. I don't want to say too much because uh, this is the kind of film where you just really want to pay attention to the first half hour to because everything that happens after that is a reaction to it. Um, but uh, but yeah, it is. It, 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 then you you know you you sort of understand how class and religion play a role in a society where the sort of upper classes may seem maybe more secular and and uh, and they're you know and they're at odds with with what else is going on in society and then all this bureaucracy. Um, I don't know. I mean, watching a separation. I remember the first time I saw it. I remember thinking to myself, you know. Uh, and this is going to sound a little bit sentimental, probably, but there, uh, Ferrati at his best is to re- be reminded that cinema is an international language, and it, this, some artists in other cultures are giving some of the most potent storytelling that that is happening. And I, I, I just remember thinking to myself at the time, like, oh, I am really missing out if I am not watching films from these places, these these astonishingly complex and interesting stories that just lay like it makes it's such an indictment of the like the Hollywood system because there's nothing that I was watching that year uh, and maybe even since that even approaches the complexity of a separation. Yeah, it's it's quite uh, quite heartbreaking, but you have to kind of take both sides into account. I mean, both uh, the the husband played by Payam Mahdi, uh, who Nader is the husband, and Simin played by Leela Hatami, who I've seen in some other things um, since I've seen a separation. Who is is just a, a, a brilliant actor. Um, you know, they both have their reasons for doing what they want to do, and they're both pretty legit. But uh, you know, ultimately, she wants what's best for her daughter. As a mother, she feels that's her main prerogative. And, uh, you know, and, and meanwhile, Nader is has his father to care for. Um, and, and, you know, for and he can't leave the country while she feels that moving, moving away to another country with more freedom is probably going to be the best thing for her daughter growing up. And it's, it's, it's a deadlock. I mean, how do you argue either side against the other? It's, it's virtually impossible. Yeah. And, and then there's the complexity there is, is it is heartbreaking and and that same kind of thought and uh, and storytelling within a family that is in schism is carried over into the past which is which was Ferrati's follow-up in 2013 it's set in Paris with characters that have uh, roots in Iran and uh, it's mo- a little more multicultural but uh, but uh, you know much of the same there's a there's a family split by divorce and uh, and lingering you know the mistakes of the past catching up to people um, uh, again, I, I'm reluctant to say too much about the plot because it's the, much of the joy is just to kind of sink into it and understand what the characters are going through in this sort of melodrama. Um, but it's so well played out, and it's so uh, you know the characters and the the plotting, the the uh, acting is all so authentic that you can't help but be involved. And I would really recommend anyone if you decide you want to make a, a, a check out some of Ferrati, start with a separation, go to the past, and then watch uh, The Salesman from 2016, which is another wonderful uh, film set in Tehran. Another incident, uh, you know, it's it's this one is more about about a, an incident that is about violence towards a woman. 
And then it, it turns into, uh, you know, it becomes the question becomes around a premeditated act of revenge and uh, at what cost revenge, you know, and and um, the patriarchal structure, I guess, comes into it once again. Uh, and it is it is a wonderful film. I, I think um, I think those three so far are probably my favorite. I mean, I, I really did like a hero, too. But um, but I think the only one that sort of let me down a little bit was Everybody Knows from 2019. That's the one that Ferrati made in. In Spain, uh, and uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, recognizable actors in that uh, Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem, and it's about a family coming together after divorce again for a wedding for a big event, and uh, a character gets kidnapped, and then it's about how the the I guess the the motivations of the kidnappers and how that reveals what's going on within the family, and it's about class uh, again, um, and it is it is fascinatingly done, but I also felt like everybody knows was maybe not quite as sharp because well Ferrati is working in a film in Spanish, he doesn't speak Spanish. And uh, his actors didn't speak Persian, so they actually communicated with each other in English. And I felt like there might have been something lost in translation as a result. Um, also, I felt like it was more of the melodrama and the thriller aspects, the genre aspects, didn't really mesh as well in Everybody Knows. It's still worth seeing, uh, and it's that's from 2019. And, of course, with that cast, it's hard to go wrong. But... But I also wanted a Leonard Cohen song cover, cover in Spanish that never happened. But anyway, yeah, so, so that's, you know, those are, the, are his, his last few films. Yeah, I didn't see uh, The Past or Everybody Knows, but I feel like I should at least, maybe for the sake of completion, see them. The Past, certainly. It, it seems like a great compliment to a separation uh, in, in, in the way it deals with that, that marriage dynamic and what happens when things break down, and especially with that cross-cultural um, kind of conflict that happens in in the past uh i feel like that would be pretty compelling everybody knows feels like a more conventional you know kind of film and it's and it's like a genre trappings i guess is a thriller kind of mystery thing and maybe that's something he didn't have his heart in as much as uh i mean according to uh the write-up on the salesman he actually left the production of everybody knows partway through to make the salesman back in iran and then finish everybody knows so um you know, I guess you can tell where his heart lies. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, and today's show is looking at films from Iran. And we started with uh, one of the latest films uh, from that country, A Hero, and uh, uh, a very likely contender for a Best International Film Academy Award uh, when those nominations come down. In fact, they may be down when you hear this, so uh, you can tell if, <laughs> if we're correct in our prediction or not. But right now, we're going to look at some films by a director named Jafar Panahi. And... Uh, he is uh, he's a director who makes some very interesting, very human films. Uh, he started out as a documentarian, which I think is not hard to tell from his dramas because they often have a kind of a, a fixed camera a cinema verite you are there kind of feel about them that they're they're not uh, they're not very um, they're not very fussy in their filmmaking and uh, they, they they tend to uh, have a very uh, rip from real life feel about them. Uh, and often using non-actors and 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 so on. So uh, we uh, we we started with a, a film that uh, is his first 
dramatic feature from uh, 1997, and it's uh, basically made him a, a name on the international cinema circuit uh, pretty much instantaneously, and that is The White Balloon, which came out in, um, sorry, 1995, and it was followed by The Mirror in 1997. Now, The White Balloon is a pretty simple story about uh, a young girl. It's uh, New Year's Eve in Tehran, and she wants a goldfish. And uh, I, I gather that goldfish are symbols of good luck um, because it comes back in another film uh, later on, uh, the, the, the quest for a, to, uh, to do something with a goldfish. And, uh, and she, uh, even though her family sells goldfish, she wants one of the special ones from the store that cost twice as much. And uh, so she argues with her mother and, um, and her brother, and uh, eventually she she gets some money and uh, runs down to the store through the winding streets of Tehran all by herself. She doesn't. She's not very old. She's, you know, maybe seven or eight, I think, maybe at most. And um, played played by Aida Mohammed Khani, and uh, she she's. Uh, She's a, you know, she's a little girl. She's full of spunk. She speaks her mind, uh, and uh, she's she's quite an interesting presence. It's amazing uh, that uh, you know this whole film kind of focuses on her the whole time, and uh, she she basically has a, a number of. Uh, circumstances that happen to her along the way. She loses the money. She has to go to the storekeeper and tell him to keep the, the goldfish that she wants uh, until she finds her money. Um, you know, he puts up with her as best as she can. And then she, uh, she, she has to deal with another store owner, a, a tailor, um, to try and help her find the money. But then he gets into an argument with a customer and it's, you know, it's, it's just this, uh, she's on this merry-go-round to just get her money back and get this goldfish. And uh, it just has to go through endless hoops uh, to, to just do this simple thing and, and get back home in time for, for New Year's with her, with her new, uh, I guess, pet, if you will. I, I, don't, I don't know how they treat goldfish as, as pets or as symbols or as decorations or what have you. But it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see how this young child's mind works and, and how she um, you know, deals with these situations to try to get some sort of resolution. And, uh, you know, clearly, uh, Panahi has a lot of affection for this young girl and her predicament. Yeah, I can, I can get, I got that from the film. I have to admit that the, the first 15 minutes, I couldn't, I wasn't sure what I was getting into. My first impression was, I, I can't believe that this movie is going to be about a little girl trying to get a fish. Like, that's what this is all about. Like, I, I didn't quite get that this is kind of a family movie, and it, and it actually probably aimed at a younger audience. Um, but uh, I really did enjoy, once she gets out and tries to get to the store, and she is she encounters the snake-charming con men on the street to try to yes. separate her from her cash, as well as other temptations, I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, we should mention that this film was co-written with another prominent Iranian filmmaker, Abbas Karastami, who will mention some of his films later on. He's, he's kind of like the godfather of, of Iranian film in some degree, uh, best as I can understand. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I really, the thing I liked about The White Balloon was the way that, as with many of these films, all the local details, the locations, the way the film shares the details of the culture. Um, the, the, uh, we watched this on the Criterion channel, and it looks like it was shot in the 1970s, not the 1990s, <laughs> because the print is so grainy. Uh, but, but the little girl is so adorable. You, you really do, do find her to be a compelling presence. You're right about that. Uh, now, 
one thing I learned from having read up about the film, Wikipedia tells me that she has become in her, I mean, she's what, like seven in 1995? Something she, like that, yeah. She's become a neuroscientist and she's doing her post huh. postdoctoral work at the University of Calgary. So, <laughs> so there you go. If, if, if Wikipedia is, is accurate on that, she's uh, taken her life in a very different direction than film. But, uh, but yeah, this is a, this is a charming little, little movie. And, uh, and it, and in, in a weird way, in some ways it, it is, has its partner in the mirror, which comes out, came out in 1997. It's also available on Criterion and stars Mina moment. Mohammed Khani, who is, uh, is the sister of the girl from the white balloon. Uh, which I thought was a f- interesting, clearly connected to this family. Once again, this is a film about children. Um, and the crux of the problem is that Mina has just gotten out of school, but her mother hasn't picked her up. So she's, you know, she's kind of, she's sort of cuts quite a pathetic figure with her school bag and her one hand in a cast. And she's, she's, you know, on the streets and she doesn't know what to do. And she's wandering around in traffic. And basically I would say a, a third of the running time of this film, if not more, is her in traffic, running, crossing streets with cars coming and going in all directions. Uh, and so she gets on the bus, but it goes in the wrong direction. And it's interesting. The, the film basically reveals like a lot about how lots of mostly men ignore her and tell her to do something else. And, and she, you really feel her concern and you feel the injustice and her vulnerability as within the noise of the city that she's just trying to get home and nobody seems to be paying her any attention or really helping her. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of crying. I feel like these sisters in these two movies we're talking about cry all the time. <laughs> I really feel for them because they're just very naturalistic performers. Yeah, they, they find themselves in these situations where they're, they're in a, big city surrounded by strangers they're far from home they certainly don't have helicopter parents they're left to fend for themselves in the middle of one of the most bustling cities in the world and uh which i guess is a normal thing because i think we keep encountering in these films we often encounter children just kind of doing their thing in the middle of the big city um and and uh, i think uh, panahi has a, a real affection for them and a real understanding of how a child's mind works uh, and and I, we see that in some of the films by some of the other directors as well but i think you know he really understands how hard it is for a child to be taken seriously by adults and that's uh, that certainly plays out big time uh, in both of these films and of course the mirror uh I feel it earns its title in a couple of different ways in one it's it's kind of a mirror of its predecessor um the stars obviously look very similar because they're sisters, so they're kind of mirror images of each other. And then also the film switches gears partway through in a way that, uh, you know, if you don't read up on it, you would never see coming. And uh, and then it becomes a wholly entirely different story, uh, you know, with the same uh, lead actress. But it's, uh, it, you know, it, it just completely throws a wrench into the works. And I get it. And judging from some of the other Panani films, I've seen, uh, you know, he's a bit of a trickster. He, he likes to play games, uh, you know, to amuse himself and to uh, keep the audience on their toes. And, and boy, did uh, The Mirror ever do that. Yeah, I'm not going to say what it no, happens no, either. No, no, exactly. I don't, but but I, I was a little less uh, pleased <laughs> about this change, this change in the in the direction of the film than, than I might have been otherwise. I, I didn't really think it worked for me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I will agree with you that the... 
playfulness of the filmmaker is definitely on display and that's that's revealed certainly in a later film that we watched now we did he had other films in between these early ones that we we saw we, films called the circle crimson gold and one that sounds fascinating that i hope to catch up with at some point called offside which is about a group of girls who disguise themselves as boys to get into a football game apparently was banned in iran um and and in fact Panahi's uh, part of his legend, I guess, as a filmmaker, is that he has had many run-ins with the Iranian government to the point where he's been jailed, thrown in prison for his art, uh, and had to and given basically a blanket ban to stop him making films. And he has continued to make films and then smuggled them out of the country so that they could be seen elsewhere in the world and it's you know he's become he's very celebrated in the international filmmaking community for his 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 resistance to this kind of oppression and mm. uh, and so in 2015 he made a film called Jafar Panahi's Taxi also known as Tehran Taxi Taxi it's um it's available on Canopy and uh, basically it uh, and it's a it's a, an award winning film and he plays, the filmmaker himself plays a taxi driver, basically, who drives around Tehran just to hear people's stories. People share his cab. They don't even know each other. And the dash cam captures their conversations. Of course, it's all staged, but it comes across as entirely naturalistic. It's very funny. And Panahi himself is a fun on-screen presence, too. Um, so this kind of mockumentary technique, he offers a cross-section of Iranian citizens, and he refers back to his earlier films. Um, yeah, it was this one was a real joy, and I, I was quite happy, especially when his niece, Hannah, shows up, in, and she's about 10 or 11. She is such a character. I really enjoyed the banter between <laughs> yes. between him and her as she explains that she wants to become a filmmaker herself, but she can't make films that they got – her films have to be heroic and have characters who are – are uh, are saints and <laughs> and so when she captures something that is someone behaving badly she she wants she goes to the person and says oh please don't don't do that or, you know change your behavior so that i can capture it and make my film the way i want to and obviously there's a message here <laughs> very much so and and then of course she later refers she she makes a reference to uh one of the young women in in the earlier films as well and and it's this might be the best it might be best to watch this after having a few more of his films under your belt because it, do, it he does make direct references to things like offside um you know it becomes the, the, the plot of that film comes up when uh, you know he's taking a, a lawyer to uh to to a prison to see a client who was had been caught sneaking into a stadium game so uh, you know i don't know if it's the same character uh as in the previous film or it's just a reference to it because of course this film does blur the lines between reality and and uh, and fiction you know at first you think it is a documentary and then events transpire which make you realize that it, it clearly is not but but um but it is sort of heightening reality for dramatic effect kind of thing and and uh i just love all the 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 tricks it plays with the viewer um while making these serious statements about uh about society and and the conditions that uh, the people are under in Tehran, with you know they have certain freedoms but also certain restrictions, and and and, and of course he made this film because of course just filming it with a couple of dash cams, he has complete control over the filming and uh, the material after the fact that that you know he can as you say smuggle it out on an SD card if he has to or you know however he needs to to make his film and get it out of the country and when it when it premiered in Berlin he it was very made a 
was able to make a statement about how he's going to continue to make films using the tools at hand, you know, even even if he's denied official license to make them by the Iranian government, he's not going to stop making them. So, um, you know, and in that defiance, he's he's come up with some some wonderful work. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Today on Lens Me Your Ears, we're talking about the films of Iran and the cinema of Iran. And uh, in this segment, we're going to start by talking about a few films by Abbas Kiarostami, who uh, I mentioned earlier. Uh, he had a career that stretched back to the new wave of Iranian cinema in the 1970s, even before the Islamic Revolution, and continued to make films throughout his life until his, he passed away in 2016. He made, I think, something like 40 features uh, following an idiosyncratic muse in experimental films, narrative films, documentary, short films. He had a, certainly a restless creativity. And uh, the film that uh, I think maybe got the most international attention in his career, maybe throughout, at least, well, certainly in the earlier part of his career in the 90s, was Taste of Cherry, and it is on Canopy. It came out in 1997. And it's a story of a gentleman, Mr. Badi, performed by uh, Humayun Ershadi, an actor whose face was immediately familiar to me, maybe just from having seen that 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 film poster, Taste of Cherry, because he's right on the front of it. But also, he's worked in movies in the West, like A Most Wanted Man. So he's a very striking look. So he's driving around the outskirts of a city one afternoon, interviewing laborers, lots of men looking for work, and he is looking for someone to help him. And at first you wonder if maybe he's looking to pick someone up for a liaison, but, uh, but uh, or then I wondered, you know, if this is this a thriller? Is he looking for someone to maybe kill him? Uh, is there going to be some kind of twisted sort of Hitchcockian plot? But uh, basically, he's looking, picking up guys and going, I need your help and I can pay you. And he projects a lot of calm, but he's clearly suffering. And uh, and there is something he wants them to do for him. It is it's not to kill him, but it is something that many of them find uh, unpleasant. And uh, and uh, you know, and it has to do with a hole that he has dug under a cherry tree. And uh, it's it's all actually pretty simple. Anyone who who understands his motivations would kind of, you know, say, all right, this is a pretty simple thing you want me to do, and you're willing to compensate me. But um, it gets a lot more complicated depending on who the person is he's speaking with. And he speaks to a lot of different people and tries to make his case. Uh, and it is an interesting film. I It's funny. Um, <laughs> I think we need to talk about Roger Ebert's reaction to this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ebert has come up on this podcast many times. We're huge fans of his, his criticism and his writing. And uh, it's he really didn't like this film. He thought it was empty and pointless. I don't agree with that, but I also don't think it's a masterpiece. I think it's it's compelling in the lead performance, especially I like the cinematography, the afternoon light, uh, the way that the, the, the film is shot is gorgeous, and it does have this sort of hypnotic vibe about it. Uh, it's, it's strangely calming watching a car driving along narrow roads around hills. Um, <laughs> but there's a sort of an existential simplicity to it, but... Um, 
you know, it, it also is kind of unnerving and, and, and odd. What did you think of it, Stephen? Well, this is the first film I watched uh, getting ready for this uh, podcast, and I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I really got a lot out of what Kira Ostami has to say about the human condition, about human nature, about, uh, you know, at, like, uh, as we mentioned with a hero, it kind of puts you in the passenger seat in a way, wondering, you know, what would I do in this situation? Um, because it is such an unusual situation that asks you to really question your own kind of values and how you feel about human life and, and other people's, um, you know, dignity and, and, um, and desires. And, and, you know, I, I just was, I guess I was in the right psychological headspace for this movie because it's, uh, it, it does ask a little bit of you to, to kind of put yourself in the place of the different people that he uh, picks up along the way and then puts his request uh, forward um, to them. So, you know, to, to sort of look after him after he's gone, as it were. And uh, it's, you know, it's, you're right, it does, it does kind of not play all its cards all at once that, that you, you do have to kind of be patient for the details to come to light as to what he actually wants and, and um, you know, the potential reasons for it and, and counterbalance that against what the other characters are going through because the, the people he picks up have their own stories to tell and their own uh, problems to deal with. And, and that, that kind of balances against uh, his own and changes his own way of thinking, I think over the course of the film. So uh, th there's a lot of really great sort of give and take between the different characters uh, that he meets along the way. And, and I really enjoyed that, that contrast. And uh, you know, little did I know this was preparing me for a lot of scenes of people driving around in cars. <laughs> it seems to be, you know, if you pick one motif for for these movies, um, is that the, there's there's a lot of that, but then that that allows for conversation. Uh, you know, people, I guess, tend to be more open and honest when they're conversing in a car. Perhaps uh, a, a lot of dramatic stuff hap can happen in in a vehicle, but 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 here it's. Uh, you know, I, I found it, it worked on a lot of different levels for me. Yeah, a lot of cars and a lot of children. Yes. Um, yeah, I would say that there is a mystery to why this lead character is doing what he's doing. I mean, once you understand what he wants to do, why the why of it remains a mystery. And I think it's it, it, it explores depression and despair in a way that uh, makes it, you know, it's a little bit like we can't really explain why we want to do certain things in our lives, but just that we want to end our suffering. And, and there's, you know, I think that's relatable to anybody. Um, one thing I did agree with Roger Ebert about was the inclusion sort of late in the picture of a, <laughs> yes. a certain a coda. Um, a coda, yes, that I felt was unsatisfying. We get like a soundtrack playing St. James Infirmary. We get grainy footage of soldiers on a hillside. And uh, I just didn't find that as a, I mean, I am all for ambiguity, uh, you know, to end a film and that's fine, but I just didn't find this one really worked for me. But anyway, I wouldn't, I wouldn't damn the entire movie just because of that. Maybe if the credits had played over it or something like that, it'd be like a Jackie Chan outtake reel or something <laughs> like that. But it, 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 it is a bit of an odd switch kind of similar to what happens in the mirror i suppose but uh but uh you know i i, I guess uh from what i've read the director was kind of second guessing his audience and wanted to leave them on but on a on a happy note i guess as it were uh -huh. um with with scenes of people working behind the scenes and these smiling soldiers who are just right. happy to be in a movie and very excited about it and uh so you know it's 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 interesting and amusing but not essential 
Um, let's move on to 10, also from Abbas Kerstami, and that's from 2002, also available to be watched on Canopy. And having seen Taxi, which came out 10 years later, you could see that, that Jafar Panahi was using this kind of a structural base for his later film. 10 of the title refers to the 10 passengers in this woman's car. The woman is played by Manya Akbari. The first character that we meet is her son. He's bright but willful, blames his mother for getting a divorce from his father. The argument they have is very heated. He feels abandoned by her and resents her for prioritizing her happiness over his happiness and the family unit. He's pretty sharp for a 10-year-old, but he's also completely selfish in only a way children who think they've figured out the adult world can be. Um, and she's also happy to provoke him and say he's just like his father while she defends her new husband. Uh, and you can see that they're really like, you know, they're really at each other. And, and um, you know, we also hear in the course of the conversation that there was a trial for the divorce and she lied on the stand. She said that her husband was a drug addict. And then she admits she did that because it was the only way she could get a divorce in Iran because women don't have the same rights as men unless the men have done something terrible. Uh, that's the only way women can get out of divorces. Yeah, she said, oh, if I said that he beat me or that he was a drug addict were the only two ways, and she couldn't bear making him look like a violent thug. So she went with the drug, drug addict. addict. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's really revealing. Um, the second passenger is her sister, and they discuss the kid and the relationship and their mother and, and the son's attitude. And then there is a third is an older woman going to play to pray. Then we get a sex worker. And uh, and eventually, actually, the kid comes back into the story and the camera sometimes cuts between the driving woman and her passenger. Sometimes it rests solely on the passenger like the kid. And sometimes it rests just on the driver. And uh, it is it's a fascinating way to sort of express, you know, character issues as they drive around uh, and, and certainly. You know, the driver has some strong opinions about how women can be happy and independent in a society that doesn't give her the same rights as men. Um, it is it's a it's a challenging, interesting film. In, in some ways, it's not nearly as lighthearted as 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 Jafar Panahi's Taxi. It's much more serious. But uh, there's definitely humor in it, though. But there is definitely humor in it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really liked it. I thought I, I, it makes a nice sort of parallel to Taxi to watch Ten, and I would recommend that. Yeah, the, every uh, every conversation that happens is is worthwhile. There there, there are no dud scenes in my mind, uh, and. You know, and of course, ten conversations in in ninety odd minutes. Uh, you know, it goes by pretty quickly, and and uh, I, I like the, the kind of the economy of the the storytelling through each of these conversations. Uh, the one with the sex worker I thought was especially illuminating. Uh, you know, revealing a kind of um, an underground that uh, you know certainly doesn't appear in any of the other uh, films that were made in Iran uh, that that have, we've seen for for this uh, show anyway. So that was that was a little eye opening in, in terms of. Um, how that system works in Iranian society, and you know the the, the we don't see we don't see this the, the sex worker uh, she, she remains off camera except for a little bit at, at when she gets out of the car and goes off to find her spot uh, on the sidewalk so to speak and and um, you know talking about how you know wives are the wholesalers and we're the retailers and you know th this very frank discussion about sex which is. You know, pretty seems it just feels pretty unusual for a film uh, from Iran. It, it, it seems like it's a subject that's probably generally frowned on. Uh, so to see something this frank about it um, is is kind of eye opening. Absolutely, and you know what? I in my research I learned something else about the kid who is so prominent in this film. 
Uh, she has grown up and has transitioned. She is now known as Amina Maher, and she is a filmmaker herself living in Germany. She was making provocative short films in Iran, but they kind of the, the controversy around those films prompted her to leave. Um, mm. Now, um, what I've also learned is that she didn't realize when she was a child that she was being filmed. So uh, the mother must have signed off on that. Now, <laughs> knowing that the kid didn't know the camera was on her makes me wonder about the rest of the people. Like, there's an element of voyeurism here that makes me a little uncomfortable, I have to admit. But it's still interestingly done, and I would still recommend the film. Jeez, well, now, see, I didn't know about that fact, and now I'm kind of thinking about it and trying to imagine how some of these things would have taken place. But um, because he, he, he clearly seems to be performing in yes, a way. Yes, so, yes, there is that. The, the, I don't know. Wow. I don't huh. know. Yeah. Well, now I, I may have to look at it again in a different light because, uh, you know, the, the, there's a woman that we encounter a couple of times, and she undergoes kind of a drastic physical change. I don't want to say anything about it. Uh, too much, but but that seems like something that was probably conceived for the film. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the adults must have known yeah. that there was something going on. It's clearly but, a dash cam. Yeah, there, yeah. So. I mean, perhaps the uh, the the sex worker didn't know, but we never see the sex worker's face, so maybe that's, that's how true. they get away with that. Anyway, there. Yeah, it's it's compelling, interesting, perhaps troubling, but still worth seeing. Now, before we move on, actually, Stephen, you watched a couple of other uh, Kiarostomi. Uh, excuse my pronunciation I knew I would get into trouble <laughs> films that I didn't see The Deserted Station from 2002 where he he wrote the film though didn't direct and then one of his last films Like Someone in Love do you want to talk about those? Yeah I'll just briefly touch on those uh, The Deserted Station uh, or Deserted Station without the, the depending on where you find it is on Canopy it's it's kind of a, an interesting story about a, a woman um, played by Leela Hatami from A Separation and it's great to see her again and and She's basically left to fend for herself in this very remote, I'll say village, but it's actually inside of an old fort, you know, that probably dates back centuries. Uh, but there's a community that lives there, and, and she stays behind to teach the children uh, while her husband and the guy who's the teacher there uh, go off to find a part to fix their truck, which is broken down, left them stranded in this uh, middle of nowhere village. So she kind of gets to know the children and she is a teacher and and give them their lessons for the day while her husband goes off with this other guy who's basically the only adult male in the village everybody else is off in the city working and uh, he's the town barber the veterinarian the doctor the teacher uh, he's the jack of all trades that kind of keeps things running and and so essentially we, we see her sort of bond with these children and and kind of learn about their lives and and their own uh, daily struggles and and she's got her own inner turmoil over the fact that she's unable to have children she and her husband and they have a conversation about that sort of towards the start of the film and uh, here she is surrounded by children and and kind of pondering her own um, her own fate in that regard and 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 sort of cherishing this moment with these children uh, and th there's quite a bit of humor in it and there's quite a bit of sadness in it as well the other film is uh, Kiarostami's last dramatic feature and that is uh, like someone in love and in fact it's uh, it's uh, completely out of his element he went to Japan and shot this um, feature in Japan with an all Japanese cast uh, inspired by a woman he saw on a sidewalk uh, dressed in a bridal outfit when he was in uh, Tokyo for a film festival and then when he was there years later he still had this image stuck in his head and he was kind of looking for her while he was driving around the streets of Tokyo not knowing that he'd never see her again but just having that image kind of fixed in his mind so he came up with this story of a young woman who is um, 
she's a hired escort and she is hired um, by an elderly professor who really just wants companionship. He just wants to have somebody to have dinner with and, and conversation. He's widowed and he's lonely and, and she thinks he's hired her for sex, but he just really wants you know, an evening of companionship. And there's some mixed messages there, but they form a friendship. But she also has a wildly jealous boyfriend who, uh, uh, you know, is we see a couple of moments where he just explodes with jealous rage and he can't control it. And uh, that becomes a factor later in the film. And, uh, but I think, you know, it says a lot about to- toxic masculinity and, you know, proper um, behavior be- between uh, genders and how people can get along and uh, and kind of the kind of behavior that we should, look to condemn or you know control in ourselves and it's it's a quite a poetic and 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 lovely film and uh and not a bad way to to end a career i don't think all right now before we wrap up this uh episode of lens me your ears let's uh, nod towards the uh iranian diaspora in the united states with a couple of titles i saw a film called a simple wedding which is uh on prime it's from 2018 and it's directed by uh, sarah zandier who is again pronunciations i hope i'm getting that right she's an iranian american filmmaker this is a, uh, a rom-com, and it's uh, it, with the lead Tara Grammy, who is Iranian-Canadian. She plays Nusha. She's a lawyer living in Los Angeles who, whose parents are always trying to set her up with other Iranian-American men. Now, this isn't a terribly fresh scenario for romantic comedy set in diaspora communities. It's certainly one I've seen before. Um, but it gets really interesting as it goes along. Nusha is a feminist and an activist, and she meets a guy who she really clicks with, Alex, played by Christopher O'Shea. He's got all the same values as she does, but he's not Iranian, and he's bisexual, which feels like an especially different and progressive take on the rom-com structure. Now, she's terrified her family is not going to accept him because he's so different and he's not of a Persian background. The leads have great chemistry. Uh, it's they're really fun. They go to art shows. They get high. They it's just so interesting and unconventional. It's, and she does an unbelievable impersonation of Celine Dion, which uh, he admits on the first date really turns him on because he's always had a thing for Celine. It's it's a remarkable kink to be so upfront about on a first date, uh, and that Celine thing pays off in the end. Um, yeah, it's not like the best rom-com I've ever seen or the most original, but there are aspects of it that do feel really progressive, even though the final act is a bit rushed. And uh, I wish we'd spend more time with the two leads, but it has charm. And if if you're feeling like a romantic comedy with, uh, you know, um, Valentine's Day coming up, uh, you know, I'd recommend it wholeheartedly. It's uh, for rom-com fans. You know who you are. So <laughs> that's a simple wedding. Now, Stephen, you watched a movie called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which I saw years ago in Toronto at, at the TIFF Lightbox. It is a gorgeous film. It's by Anna Lily Amirpour, who is an Iranian-American filmmaker who's gone on to do other films like The Bad Batch, which we've talked about. But what did you make of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night? Well, I've been wanting to see this for a long time, so I'm glad that this opportunity came up to uh, to, to finally see it. So yeah, so if the other film was for Valentine's Day, A Simple Wedding, this one's good for Halloween because it is a Iranian-American vampire film about... <laughs> Uh, a, a striking woman known as the girl played by Sheila Vand, who is um, stalking the streets of bad city at night. And uh, it's, it's ostensibly set in Iran in, in a sort of an Iranian kind of urban industrial landscape, but it was actually filmed around Bakersfield, California. And it's shot in beautiful black and white um, cinematography. And essentially the girl, uh, she's a vampire and she uh, tends to take out men who are uh, 
behaving badly, shall we say. She takes a, she takes it out on um, men who mistreat women, and, and that's uh, kind of her mission in life. Except she meets a a, a young man who um, who is uh, he's a works as a gardener, and he's got a father who's a drug addict, and uh, you know she they kind of uh, form a bond. Uh, you know they're both kind of nocturnal, and uh, and then they they just kind of avenge uh you know avenge him on this uh this drug dealer who's been feeding his uh feeding his father drugs and also took his uh, vintage 50s t-bird as payment uh for his father's debts and uh it's uh it's a pretty compelling story it, it, it's uh, it moves at a kind of a leisurely pace but the the characters are so engaging and and the the landscape is so sort of weirdly foreign and yet familiar that uh yeah i felt really uh really engaged by this film that brings us to the end of Lens Me Your Ears for another episode, this one on Iranian film. We hope that you've enjoyed our very brief, really, and only the beginning of a look at the richness of this culture, this cinematic culture. It's been a real pleasure for me to, to watch these movies. Um, now, Lens Me Your Ears is, uh, is available. You can reach out to us through Facebook. We have a Facebook page. We're also on Twitter as Lens Me Your Ears. Now, Stephen and I also have our own Twitter handles. What's yours, Stephen? Mine is at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And mine is named after my blog, Flaw in the Iris. We want to thank CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for doing all the magic that you do. And thank you, very kind listener, for listening. We'll be talking about movies again very soon. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.